today I'm, I'm here talking with uh, Renata. Renata is, uh, works in antitrust at Wilson Sonsini. Um, antitrust is a, a pretty important area of law that can affect companies as they become very powerful within the market. And Wilson Sonsini is one of the, the top technology law firms in the United States. And so we've got someone of a pretty high caliber in terms of the, the legal aspect on this to talk with us. So Renata, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, yourself, uh, who you are, and, and where you've come from. Sure. Um, so I'm a native Californian. I grew up in Berkeley, um, which is a big, obviously a big university town. I, whenever I say I grew up in Berkeley, people always say, I didn't know people grew up in Berkeley, but uh, I actually did. Um, and I uh, went to college outside of Boston at a small women's college and then um, went back to Berkeley for law school. Um I uh, spent the first part of my legal career working for a law firm in San Francisco, and um, uh, I did mostly intellectual property litigation for technology companies um, in that practice. Um, And then I think when I was about seven years, after practicing for about seven years, one of the partners I worked with um, was asked to go back to the antitrust division and work there on a big a big merger at that time it was a two big telecom companies um and when he left i said well you know if you ever need help i might be interested in coming back to help and um about a year later he called me and said you're still interested so i moved from san francisco to washington and started working at the justice department um and I ended up being. Had you just, done antitrust before, or did you? Was this your first move into it? I. It was more or less my first move. I mean, most of the um, big cases that we handled on the intellectual property side, we did a lot of work for Nintendo, and there was clearly a, a time where, <laughs> believe it or not, Nintendo actually was alleged to have a lot of market power in the video game um, industry, and so there were. Whenever we filed intellectual property cases, we typically would have antitrust claims um, brought back against the company, and that was how um, that was how I, I was first became involved in doing antitrust work. But I had never done it in the way that I do it now, or in the way that I did it at the antitrust division before I um, took the job at the Justice Department and moved, moved to Washington. Um, so I ended, my brother also is in, is in antitrust, but it seems like he's been doing antitrust for a long time. He sort of he studied that and, and has gone all the way through. You, you found it a little bit later. Yeah, and and Matthew's sort of a true blue uh, <laughs> antitruster. I'm a, I'm what some people think consider to be an interloper, but um, but it uh, it has it's become certainly become my career. And I, it, interestingly enough, you know, I I didn't take it in law school. I didn't study it. Um, and when I was talking to someone else who was actually one of the lawyers who represented Netscape at the beginning of the Netscape Microsoft uh, stuff. It turned out that neither uh, she nor the partner that she was working with at the time had taken antitrust in, in law school either, and both um, she at least had started out as, a, as an intellectual property litigator too. So um, uh, I, think, I think people who, who are looking for interesting practices that have sort of real-world aspects to them um, gravitate towards it uh, as a as a subject matter. Right. So, I mean, my my list and my audience are CEOs of of companies doing between about a million dollars a year up to about a billion. Um, why is antitrust relevant to them? 
Well, um, it's relevant on a whole variety of different levels. Um, if they ever are involved in a, in a transaction, meaning buying or selling. Uh, actually, and you know what? Before we before we go hmm. down that road, maybe we should actually clarify exactly what antitrust is. What is antitrust? <laughs> so, um, antitrust is is a is a, is an area of law which is designed to preserve uh, the competitiveness of markets. Um, and the goal there is, again is is not to um, keep people from getting big uh, or to punish um, companies for getting too large. Uh, the goal is to keep the marketplace from suffering from impairments to its ability to function properly. And so what that means is that people are um, what the what it's trying to do is to um, is to make it possible for people who have uh, you know interesting ideas and um, and or new products or uh, innovative um, <clears throat> ways of doing business. It makes it possible for them to succeed in the marketplace despite the fact that they're small. Um, and it makes it um, possible for them to um, uh, be assured that if one of their large um, competitors tries to do something um, bad to keep them from succeeding, the law will be there to protect them. But it, re- it really is just about keeping the free market working um, fundamentally, which is kind of a you know a, a broad, big way of describing it. But that that is the goal. Um, because it, it seems to me like when I hear about antitrust, which you know I, I hear about it a fair amount in the in the news, in the Wall Street Journal and and, and online, um, it comes up in the context of Google versus Yahoo and all that sort of stuff, which is just you know billion dollar companies fighting it out and and, get, and then getting regulated by the U.S. government. How's that? How does that then become relevant to a, a, a fifty million dollar a year startup? Well, I mean, so you, it can it can touch a company like that in a variety of different ways, and, and what I was starting to say is that that. Um, one of the easiest and um, you know most common ways is, is just a a basic kind of rudimentary thing that happens, and that is that if you are being acquired by someone or you're get or you are acquiring someone, um, and you are a certain size or the entity that you're doing business with is a certain size, then you have to file a a, a, rep, a report of. of form with a bunch of information with the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, and they get the chance to review your transaction um, before you can close. Um, and so uh, very often, small companies are subject to uh, these reporting um, requirements because uh, they're being acquired by much larger companies. Um, and it's also the case that, and the, well, I should say, so that's just a kind of a basic way you run into it. At least in the U.S. and most of the most foreign jurisdictions have reporting requirements like that as well. Um, so <clears throat> the other way it's relevant is that it just is you you can and this is uh, our practice involves a lot of small technology companies that are um, not necessarily at risk but that are um, occasionally being um, pushed around by. Uh, larger companies that have already gotten into the market and um, have uh, what we call market power in the um, in the world of antitrust, and the 
the antitrust laws can be used by those companies, either um, by uh, getting the governments to start investigations, which is one path that people go down sometimes, or even by suing uh, in private litigation. There were, you know, Microsoft again is a classic example. So you were, tell, you were explaining how, how antitrust can uh, relate to uh, smaller businesses that are that are, uh, that are growing. Right. So, so as as I mentioned, one way is just that you kind of run into the, the antitrust laws in the con, in the context of um, any kind of not any kind of but some transactions that you might be doing, um, and there are lots of different ways that those reporting requirements can affect um, small companies. They even affect people when um, officers when they're buying too much enough stock of um, uh, of, of the companies that they're they're part of. Um, so <clears throat> that's one easy way. It's not the most interesting way. The other, the other way is that um, it can be used as a tool to um, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of go to war with a larger competitor that's threatening you in some way. <clears throat> um, so this is so antitrust then becomes a way that you, you're dealing with a very powerful company, for example, uh, Microsoft, or, or that's now becoming. Um, Google, where my brother's at, or, or any of these others that are, that are big companies that have a huge amount of market power now, antitrust can be a way for a smaller company to take on a big company. Right, and I mean there are lots of examples of them. Out, you know, Intel and AMD are going at it. Uh, AMD is fighting against Intel, both by suing them in a lawsuit, but also by getting the European Commission and uh, a bunch of and trying to get the U.S. and um, any number of other foreign entities to 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 start investigating Intel's business practices. And that can just hang up a, a large competitor um, in uh, for a long time with a regulator, you know, poking around in their documents, which can be <clears throat> just as a matter of uh, everyday business, um, uh, not only a hassle for them, but it can have, com- you know, pretty severe consequences. And Microsoft is sort of the classic example of that. They, they've been um, under regulatory scrutiny, scrutiny for now, more than ten years, um, as a result of, of so, the conduct they engaged in. Obviously, there's been the whole Netscape and Microsoft thing, um, and Netscape took them on, and, and obviously Netscape's now gone away and was acquired by AOL, and the browser's been discontinued. Um, you could hardly call that an, an antitrust victory for Netscape. So, I mean, was that considered a success, or and, and or where are cases where a startup has used antitrust successfully against a bigger competitor? So I think um, one there there are different ways of thinking about it. I think it was a success in the sense that it it sent a signal to Microsoft that it couldn't engage in these kind of business practices and not get caught and taken to task for it. And Microsoft has clearly um, uh, been there's been a drag on Microsoft for a long time as a result of that case. Um, now Netscape in itself. Um, Obviously, uh, is uh, you know no was kept from being, uh, or at least was kept from the potential that it had to be a, a you know a big a big player in the browser market. Um, but one, um, I think the the way to think about the case is um, f- from the the larger impact it had on the technology marketplace, um, in the sense that it told large companies in the tech in the tech sector that. They weren't immune from this kind of regulation. Um, that the Justice Department was capable of um, 
mustering the resources together and combating them, and that they needed to be careful about how they behaved. And I think there was a real, um, not exactly arrogance. Uh, I mean, I think there was some arrogance in Microsoft, but I think there was a real sense among the Silicon Valley, at least in the U.S., um, that said, hey, you know, they're never going to come after us because we're this new dynamic market and nobody could ever um, <clears throat> ever understand it well enough or uh, do anything in, in these kinds of markets um, to to affect us. And I think the case really said, you know, that's just not true. Um, the other thing, of, in, in a more practical sense, is that, you know, all these Netscape, Real Networks, which is another company that um, was alleged to have been... Um, harmed by Microsoft's conduct, um, uh, Novell, all of these companies in the wake of that lawsuit have settled uh, cases with Microsoft, and I can't now remember how much money Microsoft has paid out, but it's it's been in the more than a billion, I think, um, in settlement of cases. But, that, I mean, well, Real Networks are still going okay, but, I mean, Novell and most of the others are kind of got trashed. But I guess could this raise the question then? I mean, uh, Vista hasn't done real well. Microsoft's on a downward slide, and they, they hope to get it right with Windows 7. Could, it, could the, the antitrust settlements against Microsoft be one of the things that kind of held the company back and, and caused uh, Apple to start moving forward and open up more more opportunity for others? I mean, the so, browser's not doing that well either. I mean, all of this stuff, it's, it's effect, they're being affected on every front. Is antitrust one of the reasons? Yeah, I kind of, I think the, the answer to that is sort of. Um, I mean, people comment now that, you know, Microsoft used to be an agile you know, uh, competitive entity and that they are now kind of like a slow lumbering beast. Um, a little exactly. bit like what, what happened to IBM in the wake of all of the um, antitrust. It's, it's exactly how it feels, actually. It's a, it, I mean, it's a big beast and they got a really big bank account, but they, they just, the, the stuff that I'm seeing from them now, they just don't quite get it. Right. Um, do you think, is, is it antitrust or is it because Bill Gates has stepped down and, you know, maybe Steve Ballmer's not up to it as much as Gates is? Is it, is it something like that or is the antitrust regulations and the, the, the things that's happened to the company as a result, is that what's, what's causing it? I, I think it's a combination of all of those things, but I think essentially once a company becomes subject to the kind of scrutiny that Microsoft has been, and, you know, I worked on the case when I was at the Justice Department, um, you know, the the people were just involved in every, not every aspect of the development of their products, but they had regulators or their or people working for the regulators watching everything they were doing, and um, it. I think that really does slow you down, and it. It's also, I mean, there's a way in which companies just mature over time, and I think they get large and a little bit more. Things are harder to to turn on the dime when you get to be that big, but um, but I, I I do think that going through that process and recognizing that you couldn't just kind of freewheel your way <clears throat> around in the marketplace um, did have an impact on the company. So what kind of I mean. Today, like, what kind of antitrust things is Microsoft having to do to comply to with whatever they have to comply to? The main, the main things that they're currently having to do is license some of their technology so that um, this is both in the U.S. and in Europe. They were required to license what are called communications protocols, but it's the way the server talks to the, the uh, Windows operating system. So they're having to license that te- technology in some cases for 
free, though having to license it to the open source um, uh, community in, in Europe at least, and that um, is, a I think, a big deal for them um, because the primary competitor on the server side has been Linux servers, and um, um, I think Microsoft is... Uh, this, this, these settlements, I think, will help those entities um, do better in the marketplace as a consequence. Um, and this is um, what you know. specifically are they being forced to license? Is it the, is, it's not Samba for the the disk integration, is it? Because I think that's reverse engineer. Like, what, so what kind of stuff is is being licensed? It's it, it's the it's the it's the instructions and language. <laughs> It's the technology that the that the server uses to ask the uh, client operating system um, to send it uh, information. So it's it's what oh, it's sorry, how. Samba. Sorry. It's the is it the file it's the file sharing stuff, is it? Yep. I mean, and Samba is part of um, the one of the entities that uh, I think, at least in in Europe, people hope will benefit from from having this uh, technology. The, the the claim, and this was a bigger part of the European case than it was in the U.S., but the claim was that people like Sun and Samba and Red Hat, who build competitive servers to Windows servers, couldn't make it in the mar- mar- marketplace because the Windows servers just always did a better job communicating with the Windows client, and the Windows client was a monopoly. On, and so if you, if you couldn't sell to, to a company a server that... Um, communicated seamlessly with all of the computers that they were working with in their business. Then, what good was it? And so, the goal of that of the rent of this part of the remedy was to to even that out and make it possible for those entities to compete, so that Microsoft wouldn't then not only have a uh, a monopoly on the desktop, but would also have a monopoly on the server side. Um, so that's. Um, so when Microsoft has these restrictions in the U.S. and in Europe, do they then roll that out worldwide, or do they go and do whatever they want in the rest of the world? It, um, it sort of depends. <laughs> so they were have been under scrutiny in Korea, and then the Koreans um, had a case against them, also not on this particular issue, but on a on, on another issue which related to bundling of uh, instant messaging programs. Um, <clears throat> but they. As a general matter, I would say that they do these things worldwide because the, the technology markets tend to be global. Um, but they do, um, I mean, the, the, the license in Europe that they're required to enter into is slightly different from the license uh, in the U.S. That they're, so there, there are differences across the jurisdictions. Um, but, but as a general matter, I would say that <clears throat> once you start getting involved, with a company of that size that does business around the world, that any any activity or anything that you make them do, meaning you being the Justice Department or another regulator, is is going to have a worldwide impact. So let's say um, I'm I'm doing some stuff. It's pretty innovative, and um, I'm having some problems with the market power that Yahoo has. And let's say it's in the advertising arena because a lot of a lot of my guys are, are doing internet advertising and internet marketing and that sort of stuff. How how do how, what what could be an example of a case around advertising where Yahoo could be an antitrust problem for us? And as a startup doing fifty million a year in revenue, what can we do about it? Um, <clears throat> so I I think the 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 kinds of cases that are are um, most 
likely to be successful in this in this when the kind of area that we're talking about now are cases where somebody whoever it is whether it's Yahoo or somebody else is taking actions that make it difficult or impossible for you to distribute your product effectively to the people who you need to get it to so um and that's in the lingo of antitrust called distribution foreclosure. Um, if, if I have something that I want to sell, and, and assuming it's, it's legal in all jurisdictions that uh, Yahoo's advertising in, my, the, the price I can pay for the media is competitive. If Yahoo's refusing to run my advertising, then that's an antitrust issue. Is that correct? It, it, could, it would be if Yahoo had a product that competed with you. So say you both you and Yahoo are selling... Um, I don't know, uh, Christmas trees. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I was looking at, I was looking at my window so, at a tree. Say, yeah, so I'm doing great so, with Christmas trees. I'm doing $50 million a year in Christmas trees, and I, I happen to be very lucky because it's selling all year round. Exactly. And then Yahoo decides to go, and, go into the same market and sells Christmas trees as well. Right. So what you're saying is that Yahoo can't stop me from advertising on Yahoo's distribution platform for selling Christmas trees. That would be a potential antitrust problem, yeah. Um, and, and so that, I mean that is fascinating. I've never, I didn't realize that sort of thing existed. So if or, that actually happens, I can then I can then go and you know start mumbling about antitrust to Yahoo, and that'll that will generally force them to open up their platform and allow me to run the advertising, does it? It might. Um, it sort of depends. Sometimes people are um, you know it depends on how good your case is, and um, and it depends on um, how much they're willing to fight, but. Um, but it's certainly when we're advising small companies that are having problems like that, you know, where larger competitors, for example, try to shut them out of trade shows. That's a, a classic example. Um, or, um, <clears throat> or uh, somehow, for they made it impossible for your uh, internet email program to work uh, on, when for their users. So if you logged on somehow through the internet portal and you were a Yahoo user if you if you couldn't send messages to people on Hotmail or something like that. Actually, I just read something today that um, Hotmail is apparently not working for people who are using Linux. There's something that's just recently changed. Oh, really? That's the kind of thing, is it? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a kind of... Um, that would be an example of something that if um, the Linux people might want to get somebody to figure out what's going on, why is it happening, and um, is there is there a problem there? Um, so um, these are all ways in which you can use a smaller company can use antitrust as a tool, and and uh, and often you know just the prospect. And um, we used to do a lot of work with. In my old section at the antitrust division, we did a lot of work in the financial markets also, and you know. Typically, people just don't like to have other people, and particularly regulators, looking at all their documents because, by and large, somebody's going to find something gonna, eventually. You're going to find something eventually, exactly. Uh, so I always felt like the big financial companies always um, did everything possible to avoid getting into any kind of issue with us because they never wanted to hand over any documents um, because it just can it can lead to trouble. So. <clears throat> So I think it, it can be a very powerful tool, and if you're doing it in a multi-jurisdictional way, so if you get the U.S. interested, you get Europe interested, you get Korea interested, you get Japan interested, these are entities now China and India or have large, you know, big monopoly laws. If you can get 
a lot of different jurisdictions moving, and it's relatively, as compared to filing your own lawsuit against another company, it's relatively inexpensive to do that. Um, How much is relatively inexpensive? Um it, depending on how good your case is, you can probably get an investigation started, um, you know, somewhere for work that in the range of, you know, I would say t- something like twenty to fifty thousand um, oh, dollars. Really? So it's, I mean, for this scale of stuff, it's effectively free. As, yeah, as opposed to the millions and millions and millions of dollars it would cost you to prosecute a lawsuit against somebody. So you end up with a huge amount of leverage because you can spend your twenty to fifty grand, go get go, go get all these investigations started, and then the, the government takes over and pays for it. Yeah, I mean, the, most of the government most government of the government agencies expect a complainant, like if you're the one who's unhappy about the stuff, to to support their investigation and to be available to them to help them. Because the, the interesting thing about working in the government is that you realize you really you don't have a client to teach you about the industry or to tell you how things work or to do any of that stuff. And as a consequence, they really need, do need the help of people who are in the who are in the industry. And if you are the person or entity that got them things moving, they generally will expect you to invest some resources in helping them um, pursue it. But but the cost of getting the thing up and running, um, assuming you're successful at doing that, is is as you said, comparatively, you know, it's almost zero. <clears throat> Uh, let's say um, I'm, I'm running my, my company and I'm, I'm based somewhere in the U.S. And but you know I don't know anyone in the Department of Justice. I mean you know I, I do what I got to do and I, I run my business. But how on earth does a little guy like me get to get the attention um, of federal regulators to put them on the Yahoo? You hire a lawyer. I'm afraid to say. <laughs> Uh, so you hire somebody uh, who knows how to put together the information in a way that's going to be persuasive to them and that will go into the agency and explain to them why it is that they should look at this and why the conduct that you're concerned about isn't just bad for you, but it's bad for consumers. And that's the other touchstone of all of this is that antitrust is not about hurting competitors. It's about hurting consumers. So... <clears throat> Whenever anybody, you know, is thinking about going into a regulator or suing uh, under the antitrust laws, you really have to think about telling a story about how the harm that's happening to your business is impairing you and keeping you from bringing better, cheaper products to consumers, because that's that's what they care about, and that's what the law cares about. And we, we used to always joke around that, you know, the the investigations where when we were at the Justice Department that, you know, if a competitor was really, really worried about a, a particular um, merger or other transaction, we usually thought, okay, well, that means that this is actually going to be good for competition because your competitor is concerned. Um, there's a lot, a lot of people online. I, I have um, some interest in as well in the views of, of libertarians, and libertarians would say, that antitrust, I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, that antitrust is just a sign of big government going in to regulate things they shouldn't be regulating and that it should be just a free market and let the market work it all out itself out anyway without any, any kind of intervention. What, what's your response to that? Um, so I think, you know, that there's a balance there and that is certainly what the libertarian view of uh, antitrust is, is that it, it's not, it, it, it itself uh, interferes with the free market. 
uh, my general response to that is that the market's not perfect and it doesn't work perfectly, and that um, when you have companies that um, have what we call durable and as long-standing um, market power, meaning that it's not just a flash in the pan; it's going to it lasts for more than a couple years. Um, their economic incentives turn um, in such a way that they actually are working at cross purposes with the with the way that the free market should function, because they get the most benefit out of um, keeping that um, market power uh, in existence, regardless of whether or not the next little guy who's come up has a better idea and a better, cheaper product. They don't care. They want to keep making the money that they're making. And as a consequence, they start thinking about the world in the way of, how do I preserve what I've got? Um, and so know, Rather than thinking about, how can I innovate up to the next thing and um, kill your own product because you're, you're innovating out with the next thing, instead of, it's how can I lock the market down stronger so that the new innovative thing can't get passed? That right, right. Yeah. And how, how do I keep what I have instead of how do I move forward and continue to do new and interesting things so that I'm responsive to the, to the marketplace out there? Um, so, <clears throat> so I think you know there, there's a, there's obviously a balance there because interfering with the marketplace too much um, I think can mess things up. And there's no question about it. Um, and but but doing nothing, um, I mean one. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the economic crisis in the U.S. and whether or not the lack of regulation in some of the financial markets um, was a cause of it. And, you know, I think it'll take us, you know, a long, long time to know the answer to that question. But there's certainly been a lot of discussion about whether or not the SEC and the Commodities Future Trading Commission and other places, other, you know, government regulators should have been more involved in regulating the Investment banks, and you know, shockingly, you see some of these com- companies like Morgan Stanley, and now saying, "I want to become a com- what, like a commercial bank and subject myself to greater regulation." Right. In that process, but then they get access to, to bigger withdrawal, uh, no government access for cash and stuff. Right, right. It's a fascinating environment. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean. So you're saying that there's basically there's a balance. So the libertarians would say uh, antitrust is bad. You're saying we need some of it, but not too much. Does that does that sound? Accurate? I think that's right. I mean, I think too much of it can, you know, clog up the marketplace in a way that that is uh, just is a drag on the free market. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. But, uh, so I've read um, a bunch about the history of uh, John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, and um, learned that antitrust is actually against the trust. And the trusts were what they made in the in the eighteen I guess eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. To ha- you'd have a trust that made your oil, and another trust that made your sugar, and another trust that made your butter, and 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 the whole everything was run by trust. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I don't actually completely understand what that means. Is that is, it's just a collection of companies collaborating, or was it always just one single company that had market power? Like how did how did the, the world actually look in those days that that, that caused antitrust regulation to come down? Um, I think it, it was it, it was not um, a collaboration among um, and I to be perfectly honest my history knowledge on this is probably is pretty lame <laughs> but but the um, 
the problem was that these large um, companies simply had too much uh, power and force in the marketplace and that the they were impairing the ability of the economy to function um, in a way that uh, I think people realized it really needed to function in order to you know, transform itself in the 20th century. Um, there is a part of antitrust that is about um, illegal collaborations between competitors, and we haven't talked about that at all. Um, and my recollection of this is that that's not um, particularly what was going on at that time. But you, but it's, but it is illegal for companies to get together and agree on the prices that they should sell their products at, or which parts of the country they're going to sell in, or which kinds of customers they're going to sell to. And it's illegal regardless of your size, and regardless of how much power you have. You simply well, cannot okay, you say size, do that. But let's say if it was a bunch of five million dollar companies uh, all ganging up against one other company, is that something that antitrust would still step in for? Um, if they were getting together and agreeing to, for example, boycott a particular distributor, a large distributor, it could be. Um, there are lots of cases, I mean, the classic example of the kind of thing you're talking about are cases where doctors get together um, and agree on how they're going to negotiate with insurance companies or um, hospitals, and those are violations of the antitrust law. No, they can be. What if a bunch of $5 million companies get together against a smaller competitor and, and, and have an agreement on how they handle that, that competitor? Same, same that thing. Same thing. And, and what, in, in a case like that is, that, is that still the same sort of stuff? You, pay your, you get your attorney and, and file stuff with the government and they go in and look into it all? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you can also just sue them how, directly, but yes. How routine is that sort of thing? Does that sort of thing happen a lot? I mean, there there are tons of these. These are these are typically criminal cases um, where you, if you're getting together, um, well, it depends on what you're doing. But if you're if you're getting together and saying we don't want to we don't want to deal with that distributor, that's going to be a civil case. If you're getting together, no matter how small you are, I mean, you can look on the Justice Department website. There are all sorts of rinky-dink people getting together and you know fixing prices on um, you know. I don't know, a recent case, and these weren't rinky-dink people, but, you know, marine hose for, um, I think, oil rigs. Uh, um, If you are, um, and in the technology market, you know, the biggest ones recently that the Justice Department did were these cases involving price fixing and DRAM. um, And, you know, people went to jail and paid Lots and lots and lots and lots of money and fines in those cases. And they went uh, to jail for antitrust issues. So this, yep. this is where they've gotten together in a room and set prices on stuff. Absolutely. And in, in, in the DRAM cases, and actually, that's actually, they did something you go to jail for. Yep. Yeah. And in, in the DRAM why cases, a, they did. They criminal rather than why would that be criminal rather than civil? Um, <clears throat> the um, the the notion behind this is that that kind of behavior is so pernicious and so um, against the principles of, of the functioning of the free market that, that the, the liability should be criminal. Um, and there, there's not, this is a sort of an interesting area because there's not really, there's not a bright line between when you charge someone with a criminal, criminal violation and a civil violation, but people say that if you're if you're literally getting into in together in a room with your competitor 
and uh, that you know the classic smoke-filled room scenario. You know you're doing something bad. You have you are cognizant that what you're doing is not consistent with your obligations as a um, as a good actor in in the economy, and we're going to prosecute that criminally. Um, and um, executives go to jail for that, and they pay millions and millions and millions of dollars in fines. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars in fines for that kind of behavior. And and just to note, the interesting thing about the DRAM case was that it was not a situation where people got together in a room and talked. It was a communication, a much more um, uh, <clears throat> obscure way of communicating uh, these the, the price issues, um, people having lunch, people... Um, uh, talking on the phone, that kind of stuff. It wasn't. It was not. It was not the, the classic smoke filled room. Um, and, and again, um, and no so matter what, what are the typical types of uh, illegal con- collaborations being com- between competitors? So there's pricing. There's um, selecting, working with a, a, another related company. What would be some others? Yeah. So, so the, the, the classic, the two big classic examples are price fixing. Um, well, there are three: price fixing, bid rigging, um, and market allocations. And market—the two first two are probably pretty obvious. The third is is where you where you agree with one of your competitors to only concentrate in a particular type of product because you you say I'm going to take toilet paper, you take paper towels, or um, you take DRAM, I'll take SRAM, or um, I'm going to focus my business on selling only to customers in California, you take Nevada and Wyoming. Um, or uh, or I'm going to focus on just selling to customers that have businesses with more than 500 people in it. If you're you know, a, an ERP software seller, for example, you'd say, okay, um, you take all the big companies, I'm going to take all the small ones. Um, what you're doing when you do that is you deprive those customers or those markets, those geographic areas, of the competition between the two entities. And you're essentially agreeing upon between the two entities or the three entities or however many there are in the agreement that you're going to be able to have a lock on that, this particular area or this particular type of customer. And as a consequence, you're going to be able to charge them whatever you want to charge them because we're not going to compete with you there. Um, so and so those are the three Bid rigging, price fixing, and, and market allocation are the are, are the are the classic criminal violations. So here in the Dominican Republic, which is where I live, um, it's an island. It's a country of about nine million people. It's obviously third world. Um, there's a couple of very big companies that run a lot of stuff. One of the biggest, uh, it looks like their annual sales are somewhere around the half a billion dollars a year, and they control the sales of um, some of the major brands of alcohol and cigars and things like that. Um, I would imagine that this country doesn't have the resources or um, the size to, to justify antitrust, or maybe maybe though I'm incorrect. I'm wondering, uh, do these? I mean, some of these companies have been around for 100 plus years. Um, is this the sort of stuff that, because there isn't any, probably isn't antitrust law here, that that's the reason why they are do have such market power and, and, and staying power? The other possibility is that there's um, they've been government owned. And the, or there's a transition from a uh, from a government controlled economy to a uh, to a, uh, a private economy, and that's what a happened. A lot of them came about when there was uh, there was a dictatorship here in the past. Right. So um, that's probably what. A lot of them, yeah. 
started during the dictator's time, right. but they they are privately family held. They just I think they were created during the smoke filled back room room. Right. Um, so that's, that, but that, you know, that's, now like forty years later, uh, are still still incredibly powerful. Right. And no one seems to be able to compete. Right. Um, it's possible. Often, one of the things that happens in the U.S. that drives people crazy is that um, sometimes different straight state legislatures are pass laws that immunize. Um, alcohol distribution is one of the classic examples where um, the states will will uh, enact what are essentially very protectionist um, laws for the local uh, distributors or the local producers. So that sometimes um, protects protects entities like that. Um, and I think the lack of antitrust regulation certainly can have an impact on that. But it's interesting. I I was in Japan last year at a meeting of the International Competition Network, and there were antitrust regulators from all sorts of little teeny countries. It's it's an it's a growing um, field of interest for even very small economies. But obviously, even the you know you could have an antitrust law, but whether or not you have the resources to uh, invest in the wherewithal to, to go after a large company if they're if they're violating the law is a different question. Um, so, how, from from the other side, um, are, are there lessons that startups can take from companies that have uh, successfully put themselves into a position where they do get prosecuted by antitrust? Are there things that we can look at and say? You know, um, these are the kinds of things that we can learn of to make ourselves more competitive. Is there any? Is there anything that we could? Do you think a, a company could apply? <sighs> apply from the from the antitrust context. Yeah, because in antitrust, your area is all about um, making sure that companies stay competitive. So you're looking at how companies uh, get to a certain size and they're restraining markets and stopping people from. From becoming competitive, so is there? There's obviously some some techniques that big companies use that uh, stop that that, that that restrain competition and make themselves stronger. Mm-hmm. Are there things that we could be thinking about now? Like you know, there's the, there's the playbook, the the ten the ten antitrust or the ten tricks that Microsoft's used to become mm-hmm. in the, the the position it's in. Are there things that we could learn from that to apply to our business models? Well, see, so you don't want to do those things as a general matter. Um, when because, we're small, though, we can, can't we? Uh, some of them you can do. So, I mean, there are lots of things that that people do to protect the um, and to protect their marketplaces. So, for example, exclusive relationships with suppliers, um, and those can those can be legal um, if you're small enough and you're not um, foreclosing a rival. So, um, I, I think there are. Um, you know the, the the principal tools, as I said, that Microsoft used to um, to hurt Netscape worked were using the um, primarily its relationships with its OEMs and um, with its other software developers to impair Netscape's ability to get out there on desktops and be used by um, consumers. So. On a smaller level, you can do the, some of those same very very same things, and these were mostly what you one would call exclusive dealing relationships, um, <clears throat> and that is you know just saying I'm um, I'm going to enter into 
uh, deal with, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something and I haven't thought through whether or not this would be legal or illegal, but you say, I, I'm, I'm the, you know, I've made this beautiful new kind of pottery which is, um, you know, will last forever and you can use it to make dishes and, uh, it's, it, it never breaks. You can drop it on the floor. It, it feels like glass, but it's not glass, whatever it is. And I'm going to make sure that I'm the only person who can distribute this through UPS and Federal Express. I don't know. I'm not sure whether that would help you, but, <laughs> but you can, um, okay. But you can think of ways. So that's, of, that's kind of the way you do it. And if they, if they permit to signing that, then you'd be all set. Right. Are there um, any others that that, that are possible that are, that are legal? Obviously, yeah. I'm just trying to think of other things you can do. I mean, the the main the main kinds of things that again that you you're you're going to be looking at is how do you sort of keep yourself out in front and legally keep your rivals from um, uh, getting to be in the forefront of people's minds. So. Um, and all the the ones that are coming to mind are different kinds of exclusive relationships with suppliers or distributors or um, or advertising channels. Um, you know, we talked about the example of selling Christmas trees on using internet advertising. Um, and you know, done. Correctly and by a small enough company, those uh, kinds of relationships I, I think can help you succeed and, and are uh, can be legal. So, sorry, I'm not I coming up with a better been example. Asked that question many times I bet you haven't been asked that question many times before. No, most of the time, what <laughs> what uh, what people want to know is what can't I do? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And, and typically, right. when um, typically when we do counseling, people come to us and say, "Hey, I really would like to do this. Is that okay?" Um, and sometimes you get some pretty interesting questions that way. But um, but usually the business people are the ones who are thinking of the clever ways of making sure that their product succeeds, and not the lawyers. Right. Um, the um, there's been obviously antitrust issues between uh, Google and Yahoo. Are you able to comment on any of those? Uh, I'm not really. I'm afraid since I did a lot of work for Google on it. Okay. Um, then I, that, I've, I've asked you everything I can think of. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that we haven't covered? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, you know, I'll just give a plug for for antitrust as an area that's both interesting and um, and and again relevant to to your. Um, the kinds of people who you are working with on on your on your website it's um it is one of the most interesting and fun things for antitrust lawyers to do is to have someone come to them and say i've got this big company and they're giving me a really hard time help me think through all the various ways that i might be able to fight back and there are a lot of different options yeah hmm. and that's and that's cool. it's a fun thing to do okay um, well, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate your time. All right.